Okay. Uh, I think... Hmm. Okay. Follow your heart. <laughs> Jeremy did. Oh, look, look where it led him. <laughs> yeah, look at me. I'm doing great, guys. <laughs> Just... Wow. That was a... <laughs> um... <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and personally, I'm just here hoping to finally get an answer to one of life's great mysteries. Are Men at Work and Men Without Hats, in fact, the same band? No. <laughs> That's simple. You gotta prove it to me. They're literally half a world apart. Like, mm, so they claim. Is it is it not possible that Men at Work is the daytime version and Men Without Hats is like the nighttime party version? <laughs> like they're alternate egos? Or maybe a, the same band from a parallel universe? These are my questions. Oh. He doesn't... A simple answer will not do. Yeah, no. I, I need a hard proof. Lay it out for me. I have none for you. Only more questions. I'm co-host Jeremy, and I bought the rights to a play for a dollar, guys. Interesting. Which play? It's a, a low-budget Australian play called Riff Raff, and I thought I'd spruce it up by having the lead played by American rapper Riff Raff and the soundtrack performed by Hooray for the Riff Raff. Very cool. I was hoping Hooray for the Riff Raff would make an appearance in that <laughs> little bit you did there. It was a bit. I won't lie. Well, it sounds like it can't fail. A bit of fun. <laughs> well, I'm co-host Peter Kookaburra sitting in the old gum tree. Wait, is, that, with your, us. is that your nickname? <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's my full actual name. I, my nickname is Peter Cook. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's short for Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree, Peter Cook. Yeah. Interesting. I'd love to hear the full evolution of that nickname. <laughs> I mean, the Someday. nickname is just, it was shortened from Peter Kookaburra sitting in the old gum tree. <laughs> it's <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty self-explanatory. There was, there was no path to get there. It was just like, that was your name, and then one nickname was given, and it stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's okay. simple. Some things are simple explanations, Sean. <laughs> and some people accept those simple explanations. I, I will accept this one. This one time. All right. Okay. And with us today is a returning guest who is an architect by day and a musician, as well as the owner of Rocky Road Records in Sydney, Australia. Very passionate about music. Welcome back, Mel Bell Smith. Hello. And I have to say that Peter having a nickname that's longer than his actual Name? Is that what you were saying? No, Maybe no, I've no. Got it the wrong way no, around. no. My name is Peter Kookaburra sitting in the old gum tree, and my nickname oh, yes, is Peter yes. Cook. So, if in Australia, if you have a long surname, then it gets shortened and that becomes your nickname. But if you have a short surname, it gets 
lengthened. Just saying. So, you know, if your name's short, like Piers, my husband, he gets Piersy because you have to add something to it's, the end of the name. It's just but, not oh, look, enough. I, no, it's not enough. That's right. Look, and I'm here. Thank you for having me back. And I'm here to tell you that I'm the new president of the Yellow Lid Society. Do you, do you want to know more about that? Absolutely. Well, the Yellow Lid Society is very concerned about the future of a certain breakfast substance. Uh, we're here to evangelize about Vegemite. That's our <laughs> Of course. I hear I, it's great on a sandwich. It's fantastic on a sandwich. It's fantastic with lots of things. I My <laughs> impulse was to go with a Vegemite sandwich reference for my intro. I was like, someone else is going to do that. I, I <laughs> But we might have all thought that well, way, and then none of us would have. <laughs> Peter, do you have genuine lived experience of eating the Vegemite? No. Not to my recollection. I always mix it up with Vitamita Vegemin <laughs> from the I Love Lucy show. <laughs> I can I can tell you that most Australians who are living overseas, if you want to send them a care package from Australia, it's definitely going to have Vegemite in it, a tin, a, a, a jar or even a tube. That's right. It comes in a tube uh, of uh, Vegemite. So there you go. I think the next IG story needs to be Peter trying Vegemite on camera for the first time. <laughs> If Ooh. you can find it, I'll send some over. Perfect. Yeah, send us the care package and we'll all take videos. <laughs> That's right. Oh, I would gladly do that. You want to know something uh, funny? Yeah. Earlier this week, I described Men at Work as Australia's biggest export. And a friend corrected me and was like, no, it's Vegemite. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. you know, they, 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 they go hand in hand, so it's all good. Well, that's who we're here to talk about today, correct, Mel? We sure are. We're going to talk about business as usual, Minute Works' first or debut record, and it uh, was released in Australia first, and it actually took a while to make its way to the shores of the United States of America, but when it made it there, it was massive. Mm-hmm. 1981, correct? Am I right? Well, the release date in Australia was 1981, so I've actually got... We actually have an American pressing. It's actually a Japanese pressing, sorry, in our store at the moment, which has an obi and it has the American artwork, which has a yellow cover, uh, the same artwork but a yellow cover, which is interesting. Uh, I have no idea except maybe they were referencing the Vegemite. Yeah, the Australian version was black and white, correct? Yes, it is. I've got it in my hand right now, and it's it, the release date is 1981. Apparently, there was a lot of resistance to releasing it in the States. And then it actually made its way into the American airwaves via uh, Canada, no less. So it. Oh, no. Canada, where men without hats are from. Maybe Sean. Oh. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> ba, ba, ba. Uh, yeah, so it wasn't really, it wasn't released in the States till 1982, which is interesting because it then gave them sort of the opportunity, I guess, to sort of realise, well, they certainly realised some success in Australia with the album before they went to the States, but I don't think anyone could have really predicted how much the record was going to to blow up in the United States, So, which was, like I said, massive, as in it spent 15 weeks at number one on the Billboard top 200 albums which is kind of was kind of unheard of it was it's still referred it was unprecedented a word that we heard far too much of during the pandemic uh (laughs) certainly here in australia i don't know about you guys but when you read about over here as well (laughs) 
Yes, right. So someone really needs to put that word to bed for a while. But yeah, I, I had to stop using that at my work because my supervisor did was done with that word and I couldn't blame him. <laughs> it was on the list of banned words, was yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, but that that certainly was had never been achieved by an Australian act, and you know there's a lot of Australian acts and uh, who followed in the footsteps, some very closely to Men at Work, and I would say even into the next decade, certainly uh, the interest in Australian music was down to those inroads made by Men at Work in this particular record. And I imagine that if our listeners aren't already familiar with Men at Work by name, they're going to recognize one, if not several of the songs that we're going to play. Where are we going to start? Well, I think we decided that we were going to start with Who Can It Be Now, which is the opening track. So it's uh, track one, side one. I've seen videos on YouTube that talk about how many instances there are of the cliche in songs when the singer says stop, that everyone stops, the whole band stops at that point. And I really would like to see 
a video that compiles all the times that knocking is mentioned and the drums imitate knocking. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of them, but uh, they obviously do that in that song. It's very effective, though. Also, that hook is just the definition of an earworm. My God, you listen to that song once and it'll be spinning around your head for weeks. That saxophone, yeah, the saxophone yeah. hook. Yeah, Greg Ham. I mean, just brilliant here. Such a brilliant mind for these sort of, like you say, very catchy hooks, very endearing lines. They're not the vocal. They're not the, it's not the lyrics. Uh, it's not even a guitar riff. Uh, and as you say, they're total earworms. And this album's full of, full of them. Although we will talk about the controversial one soon, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But he's really, I think he's one of, the reasons why they stand out, actually, and not just the songwriting of, of Colin Hay and indeed Ron Strykert. So Colin Hay being the, the singer and guitarist and Ron Strykert being guitarist first and, and, and then vocalist, but they wrote many of the songs. But I think Greg Ham as the multi-instrumentalist because he obviously plays flute and plays other instruments that we're going to hear, that really makes them stand out from, I think, other pub bands or other bands of a similar ilk and style that were in Australia, their contemporaries at the time, and even other bands just in the, you know, when we look back at that era, I think this isn't just saxophone because we're an 80s band. This is saxophone and flute and other things because we're genuinely interested in having a melody instrument to colour and carry the character of our music. And I think that's this song, that's why it's such a great opening song. This is one of those songs that you would hear the chorus in those videos, the commercials for compilations back in like the 90s. And I think I just knew this song as the hook initially. <laughs> you would just, <laughs> and it was late, years later, a friend of mine, good friend of mine who I used to roll around with in high school, you know, once we got our driver's licenses, he, he uh, was typically into more like electronica and industrial music. He's the reason that I know KMFDM and Orbital, all that kind of stuff. But for some reason, he was really into this album and he had it on CD in his CD wallet. And so I have fond memories of cruising around to this song when I was 18 years old in the late 90s. That, that's some diverse music taste, although I can say I also am into K- KMFDM. <laughs> so there you go. I don't know. Obviously, people into industrial music like lots of different things. (laughs) True. To me, this band, as you mentioned, Greg Ham, you know, sticks out. But I feel like part of that is because of how stark and simple kind of the other instruments are. And one of the things I really like about Men at Work is they're kind of like associated with New Wave for whatever reason, though they're not very new wave and they're not, what I like is it's, it's like heavy lyrics if you actually listen, but it's not that like over the top romantic theatrical thing that a lot of new wave was. So that's why they're cool in my book. Yeah. This song is about paranoia, right? Didn't he write this because his neighbor was a drug dealer and like he was afraid to answer the door because he just never knew who it was going to be if he even wanted to talk to them well yes and i think the the songs are overall on the album you know there was a 
there's a there's a deeper level, there's a philosophical level, there's a reflection on people's kind of well being or where they're where they're at, you know, on these different characters. And yes, I think <laughs> it's 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 still a I, I what Jeremy just said about it doesn't have that new wave. It doesn't have any flounciness about it. It has a very spare, economic, clean, bright sound. And that's in spite of the lyrics. So there's a little bit of a, it's almost like the the lyrics are coming to you by stealth. You know, you're going to get sucked in by these beautiful melodies and this these, these upbeat tempos, but actually there's something else going on. And I would say that's that's probably Colin Hayes' modus operandi all the time. But I really like that about this this record. It's not just a happy pop record, and I think there's some there's some rather unfortunate reviews that that uh, from both from the day <laughs> that sort of act as if you know it's sunny because it's come from Australia, and you know they obviously live in some naive oblivion down there. <laughs> it's quite uh, it's it's yeah. When you read it, when you read those sorts of reviews now, it just makes you so cranky as an Australian. <laughs> To read, to read. This is very dismissive, but anyway, that's typical uh, of of things from forty years ago. Cool. Should we give a little background on on the band and where they come from? You kind of mentioned some of the players at this point. I did. So Colin Hay, who ha- had emigrated from Scotland to Australia as a teenager with his family, uh, he was living in Melbourne, and playing as a bit of a singer-songwriter at a few sort of, I guess, smaller venues, pubs, and he met Ron Strykert, uh, the, the guitarist of Men at Work in Melbourne, and they started sort of playing together. And then as time went on, uh, Greg Ham, who's the instrumentalist who we were just talking about, who plays saxophone, flute, he does sing, and and in the liner notes of this record he plays keyboards and fiddly things <laughs> which is quite cute but he was he was very talented very bright young man he'd actually done acting he was actually friends with a very prominent who someone who became a very prominent comedian and, and actor in Australia uh, Kim Gingell and then later on they added Jerry Spicer who's the drummer and John Rees on bass and who also sang on this record, sang backing vocals. And so they were the, that that was Men at Work and and that was the band makeup for some time. They played around Melbourne uh, and Melbourne is known as a, a, still as a place of a very vibrant local music scene. And what I think is interesting is some of the bands though, who were their contemporaries including that recorded at the recording studio where this was recorded in Melbourne, in Richmond. And that recording studio was known as sort of a a, a slightly cheaper option than the, the sort of more premier studios in, in Melbourne, but still had some nice gear. But it was known to be more a studio where people like um, the Boys Next Door or the Birthday Party <laughs> recorded, much more the Melbourne underground alternative scene. Oh, Nick Cave's early band. Yeah, so Nick and yeah, Nick Cave's early bands before, uh, really before the birthday party, then left for London, which many Australian bands did. The tried and tested path to the UK to try and find their fortune in both the UK and Europe as a base. 
But also some of the other bands that they were contemporaries of were Australian Crawl. And I would say Australian Crawl, probably one of the reasons why they don't have any much of a following, I don't think, outside of Australia is that they aren't, I don't, I maintain, this is my opinion, but I don't think there is an inventive band or even as musical a band or as uh, compelling a band as, as Men at Work, even though Men at Work only put out three records and a lot of people would say the first two records are the ones to listen to, but they're both very good records and we're obviously listening to one of those today. So that's that's a little bit of background. <laughs> How much more would we like? <laughs> would you like to know about the Melbourne-Sydney rivalry? <laughs> we could talk oh. about that for days. <laughs> I Now I'm intrigued. What What is that? Oh, oh, you know, that everyone in Melbourne thinks Melbourne's the ants' pants and Sydney's just full of, you know, tosses who sit on the beach. And Oh, I thought this was like a music scene rivalry. <laughs> oh, no, there is a music scene rivalry as well. But, you know, all these things, it's about football codes, it's about music scenes, it's about who's who, it's about who has what, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one thing, though, that I think is an interesting context is that Australia did not have FM radio, commercial FM radio, uh, or any sort of consistent FM radio broadcasting till 1980. So there was a couple of radio stations in university. So all radio was local radio on AM, which of course meant that for a band to obtain a following outside of their sort of their their native their their location, you know, in this case Melbourne involved a lot of gigging, a lot of playing live, and it meant that you had to try and get people in other states to play your records because there weren't consortiums of radio stations like we have these days and and so forth. So the the onset of AM uh, of FM radio in the 19 in 1980 was a huge step forward for bands being able to promote their music or have their music played much further afield than previously. And the A&R man who signed Men at Work to Columbia uh, or got them their record deal, he was very keen to capitalise to capitalize on, on this. And that is uh, a little bit part of their success was that they were, they sort of were, and make they were made ready for this sort of new broadcast opportunity to sort of spread their wings and for uptake of their sort of fame, <laughs> I guess, to happen more more quickly. So there's some interest. There are interesting things that sort of sit behind this particular band and this particular record. Wow! I, yeah, they yeah caught the wave of technology. I didn't know that. Whereas I think American FM stations have been going for a much longer time than in Australia. The distances are just as far, though. I think that's what's interesting. But <laughs> we don't have the density that, that the US has. Yeah, FM in the States took off in the 70s. Yeah, right. To my understanding. So probably 10 years ahead. Yeah, something like that. It's interesting. I mean, the thing that the, I mean, what every band wanted to do was try and get on Countdown which was based in Melbourne, but it was a TV show that was on the Australian Broadcasting. Or was there, at that time, it was the Australian Broadcasting Commission and then the government made it a corporation, I think, a number of years ago. And that's a, a national broadcaster, a public broadcaster, and Countdown had a, 
a very charismatic, sometimes controversial host known as Ian Molly Meldrum. And if you ever want to watch some hilarious interviews with Iggy Pop, David Bowie, um, there's a whole bunch of just very, shall we say, <laughs> quite, yeah, quite Eccentric. crazy. You can't, yeah. you, you can't believe this stuff was on live television sort of stuff. From the, particularly from the 70s and 80s, you can find it on YouTube. But Countdown was the place that every young Australian band wanted to be because it meant that they were going to be seen and heard across the country as opposed to being stuck on AM radio, which wasn't necessarily going to play them. So hence again, uh, TV and very limited TV opportunities, but also FM radio were a big part of spreading, I guess, the the word about a band or their new their new music. So that's, yeah, that's a bit of, there's a bit of cultural context for you for the record. Wow, thank you. Straight from uh, the source. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> There's lots of other people who've researched this stuff. But, yeah, you know, I think it's interesting to look at that. And that they did, there were other Australian acts on the, you know, on the American charts, but it did it, it did take, I think, take particular records and p- particular moments in time. I would say it's very fortuitous, I guess, that they arrived at a particular point in time. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know if you, Jeremy, had read any reviews for the record. I did not, actually. I definitely, I, I read some comments posted online with it and a lot of people, yeah, it's just like a nostalgic record for them and they don't seem to really understand its depth. And I also mm. read an interesting interview with Colin Hay, the singer, where he describes, you know, performing much later on and how Men at Work didn't have like a strong following in America. They were just like a big radio hit. And then once that hit was gone, there wasn't like a huge following to it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an interesting, I mean, he obviously benefited the most, I think, from the success of Men at Work and that he has ended up living in the United States for quite some time and has ingratiated himself with all sorts of other um, very well-known musicians, including, for Peter's benefit, Ringo Starr. Um, Colin Hay plays he's in the all-star band he's in the all-star band there's another one I can't believe both the records I've brought have <laughs> people who are in Ringo Starr's all-star band I promise that next time if you have me on again I will not do that but I mean I just think that's a, it's funny though love to find that common thread with guest yeah. selections <laughs> yes yeah, so, I mean I think he's probably got a point though that, that the, the record sold Massively, when they did have the opportunity to play, people did go and see them in the in the states. But effectively, the the idea of a following, you know, that you have sort of a a, a fan base that continues and and buoys you along. I th- I wouldn't say I would say that that's probably true. But I think also the friction within the band was its undoing, and that they as a band didn't all have the same goal. And I think that was because fame and fortune were so sudden and so immense that it wasn't really something they were prepared for, or not on that scale. And I think that's probably... Classic story. 
yes, but it's yeah, and I, and I think that's definitely contributes to why they disbanded or fell apart in a way and had such a anyway. I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead, but um, anyway. Yes. Let's play another another song. Did you want to lay another hit on them? Well, I think, you know, you can't play this record without, of course, playing Down Under. And we can talk a little bit more about that after the track, I reckon. Yeah. We're talking a little side A track three. telling us before we started recording that the lyrics to that song are not what people probably think they're about it's a it's like a catchy little hooky song but what's this song really about well colin hay talks about the song as being really about reflecting on colonialism and also on the environment so you know, in the line he talks about um, where women glow and men plunder and that's, you know, that's really, it's it's cutting to the heart of what, how we were established as a, as a modern nation and it's not, it's not coincidental that that's what he's talking about. At this time in the early 80s, 
there was a lot of reflection. Uh, quite a lot of different artists were reflecting on Australianness, what it means to be Australian. I think this is something that hasn't gone away, to be honest. Uh, but I think at that particular time, there was it, it was expressing itself in a number of different ways, number of different artists. Uh, it's not something that has gone away because, of course, you know we as a country are really dealing with um, a real reckoning around our colonial history right at the moment where we're talking about having an Indigenous voice to Parliament. And so when I listen to this song, it's a very, I mean, you know, you can look at it on face value and say, oh, it's about how Aussies like taking, you know, illicit drugs and <laughs> drinking beer in far-flung places. And and really that actually talks about what it's really getting at is, you know, yes, there's this veneer of the good-natured, the larrikin, Australian, but there's something else that's that's underneath. And I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to drag everyone down because it, in many ways it is a, it is actually quite a um, uplifting song because it reminds us of where we are, and that really keys in with the whole indigenous idea of country, uh, and that you know being in place. and And these are concepts that you know it would take me a long time to kind of really discuss in great detail, but. I think you know it is about acknowledging that we're in a particular place and we are a, we are a people that are made up maybe with a history that we don't like but we want to look forward I think it's a positive song in many respects so it's it's a conflicted song but it's and yet the and you know and so then Peter you know with your kookaburra sits in the old gum tree I think even more so the song I mean the song has really carved itself into history now because not only of the you know, the different meanings that we take away from it, but its impact culturally. Yeah. And it, people remember us by it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the unofficial national anthem of Australia, correct? Yes, and that was cemented when Australia won the America's Cup, and we'll always remind you about that. <laughs> so, What's that? That was a momentous occasion in Australian history, I can tell you. Uh, yes. No, it is It is one of numerous official, uh, uno- unofficial, sorry, national anthems i think jeremy proposed thunderstruck which i said eh, maybe not oh, yeah. so much but yeah I, that was I, in the, in I, the green room some people <laughs> in the green room uh jeremy proposed yeah. thunderstruck yes. as yes. <laughs> another possible yes and then one that gets uh dragged out is waltzing matilda a lot but actually what this song was claimed to have referenced was a children's a children's song which i learned at school we all learned at school Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree. I'm not about to sing it for you, although my singing voice is quite palatable, but I'm not about to sing. Peter, you want to take a stab? (laughs) No, I referenced, (laughs) I talked about that enough with my intro, but yeah, it's it's the flute references the melody of that song. It's hard to hear with everything else happening on the track, but I watched a video where they isolated the flute and you can hear that it, it references that melody of Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree. And- I mean, the, the 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 original song, as in like the, the song Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree, is a much more swinging, lilting sort of rhythm. And so any, and this is where the the origin of it being picked up as some kind of plagiarism, copyright, interpolation, whatever you want to call it, was actually on a very well-known music 
quiz show, which is quite hilarious if you if you ever get to watch it, although quite Australian as well. So you nearly need to know your Australian music to get a lot out of it. But uh, called Spicks and Specks, it's been running for a long time. And it was a question on the TV show. And so obviously someone who was writing the questions for the show had pick up, picked up on this and it had never been dead, you know, did openly publicly detected or discussed previously. Yeah. This was in like the 2000s, right? Yeah, this was this was yeah, quite a while. This was, you know, well after the song had been released. The woman who wrote Kookaburra Sits in the Gum Tree was alive when Down Under was released. But the company who bought the rights to the song obviously picked up on what had been said on Spicks and Specs and there we go, we have a court case. And it was found to be evidence of being plagiarised, apparently. And it was quite devastating, I think, for a lot of people, not not least of being the band, and particularly Greg Ham, who who played that flute part. Yeah, it's, it sounded like it really led to a lot of embarrassment and stress for him. Oh, very much so. And, I mean, he's quoted as saying that he didn't want to die being remembered as you know, someone who basically copied someone else's music. You know, he he was very humiliated about that 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 sort of view of him as a musician because he certainly wasn't that kind of musician at all or that sort of person. And I don't just say that as someone who's read a whole bunch of articles. I, I've heard that from people who actually knew him personally, so who I know. So, um, yes, in Australia is a small place, especially if you're in music but uh yes it's it's quite interesting what is interesting though is that the song uh recently hit a billion streams in november last year so this is a song that people are clearly still listening to (laughs) my wife visited australia in 2003 and she said that this played everywhere she went Oh, really? Where is she going? She must <laughs> well, be she going was, on the tourist. She was on a bus trip, so it was playing on the bus repeatedly, on the, <laughs> to my understanding. But she would hear it in restaurants here and there as well. I mean, some of the places I've heard it, I was in a taxi in Berlin probably about, must have been about seven or eight years ago, and going to the airport. And in Germany, they love their 80s music. I warned my children about this, and it was proven correct because I was recently, for those, for listeners who don't know, I was, uh, I had the good opportunity to take my family on a European holiday in uh, what was our summer holidays a couple of months ago. And we, we did go to Berlin and I'd warned my children about the German love of 80s music and I was proven correct everywhere we went. <laughs> but yes, I have heard it in the most odd places like taxis in Berlin going to the airport. And, you know, the taxi driver pointing out that, oh, you know, Jung and Frau, you know, Australian, blah, blah, blah. Yes, yes, I'm Australian. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this must be your favourite song. Not re- oh, well, it is a great song, but it's not my favourite song. <laughs> Got me thunderstruck. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, give me something else. Yes, yeah, so it's it's a song that's, you know, and, and it was recently, whether you like it or not, there was a recent sort of techno-y sort of housey really imagining of the song a remix right well it's sort of a remix but it's colin hay actually re-recorded the vocal for it and what i think is very interesting is the flute part is very prominent so it's almost like a up yours <laughs> to, to larrikin who owned the who owned the rights to the to the song i mean what's interesting is is that even though um even though the the so-called 
the the plagiarism was proved in the courts the the royalty cut is a lot smaller than i think they an, they anticipated and it was set from a particular date so there was no opportunity to sort of date it back to when they sold 6 million copies of this record in the united states <laughs> so yeah i just wanted to put those details out there because i hate copyright generally <laughs> but they bought the rights to the kookaburra song for $6,500 and then turned around and did this lawsuit and yeah after they won they were like yeah we think we should get like 50 (laughs) percent and the judge was like how about five after 2002 (laughs) yeah yeah going back dating back to 2002 you get five percent of yeah the yeah royalties well this is a this is another big song from this album, but the two that we played aren't the only singles. There's another one. There is. So this song that we're about to hear, which is track two on side two, is Be Good Johnny. And, yes, it is a play on. Not Johnny Be Good. Yeah, it is a play on. <laughs> but, I mean, the song, the, the actual lyrics are not really related at all, but it's definitely a play on Johnny Be Good. No doubt. Well, we'll listen to that, come back, talk about it, and more about men at work. That's what we do here. That's what we do. Love the police, right, boys? <laughs> <laughs> That's very interesting, though. There's uh, there's a particularly 
gatekeepery northern hemisphere sort of superiority snobby review from the New York Times that was written about not just this record but actually just about Australian pop and in which they also then included Split Ends, which, you know, in Australia, Split Ends are a New Zealand band, you know, and I'm glad that you made that clear on your on episode. Our, on our episode, yeah. That's right. And this review is by John, I think I pronounced John Perillis, who is actually the chief music critic or one of the chief music critics at the, the New York Times now. And this this uh, review, it's it's available online, and he says this year's music business success story has been men at work who came out of nowhere, also known as Australia, <laughs> to sell oh, wow. millions of copies of their record. But basically, goes on to say that the only reason why the record's done well is because the police hadn't uh, hadn't didn't release a record that year. <laughs> Ooh. Damn. Yes. The group blatantly imitates the police, whose failure to release an album in 1982 may well have left a platinum niche for men at work. I mean, come on, you know. So, and I think what's interesting about that is that it's it's sort of, it's lazy. This is one of the things I really hate about some music journalism or writing is that the easiest way to describe something is rather than spending time uh, thinking about and writing about it from first principle, you just say it sounds like something else and whether it sounds good or bad compared to that something else and off we go. <laughs> so Yeah, and it's it's seemingly random whether the critic is then going to say that they're blatantly ripping them off or wearing their influences on their sleeves. <laughs> yes. yeah. I mean, so it's quite – it's interesting reading this article because you sort of think in retrospect maybe there are some similarities as you've just pointed out. But I would argue that also not, and I also don't, and I also sort of think, well, you've just elevated a band who are, you know, a bunch of white boys, i.e. the police, playing um, reggae, just saying, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So so you're sort of saying that no one else is allowed to play it because the police did it? I mean, it's, you know, you just kind of, you could just unpick it, this this article. It just goes on and on and on, but... uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's not very kind towards their record, but and also sort of just says, oh, you know, now they've opened the floodgates for all these Australian bands, and I'm like, yeah, but some of those bands came beforehand. Little River Band, the Bee Gees, clearly Olivia Newton-John came before, <laughs> ACDC came before. Uh, there's, a, I mean, there are other bands that were having success at the same time, and I don't see that they necessarily cop the same sort of drubbing, if I could put it that way, as 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 men at work do, he's very seems very sore about it. But this this same critic, I mean, he's apparently been called out on stage uh, in negative ways by Axel Rose um, twice on stage. So I kind of went, you know what? I don't really like Axel Rose, but I kind of tend to agree. <laughs> he's a bit of a gatekeeper. So I just had to read that because I think it's interesting reading some of these reviews from the past. But yeah, Johnny B. I mean that that song that Be Good Johnny. Sorry, not Johnny B. Be Good Johnny. Again, another song with a few little. Funny Australian Australianisms, cricket. But I think actually it's a really interesting song because it's a song from the viewpoint of the child who doesn't want to be kind of badgered into being good at sport or being all these things that I think in Australian culture, even now, but very much more so then, you know, if you weren't into sport and if you're a daydreamer or, or into even music, there must be something wrong with you. You know, you're not being good. You're not being what's expected. And, and so while it comes across as as a fairly simple song, you know, when you read the lyrics and you reflect on them, you think it's quite a comment on 
sort of the the expectations of what it means to be a male or what manhood is about and how you're defined by the things you do. So again, the the sunny, bright, happy record <laughs> reveals a darker, reflective, you know, philosophical tone, which again I think gives the record longevity beyond being sort of the carrier of the big hit, you know, down under. So yeah, that seemed to be a theme through. So I guess we'll mention quickly, they put out a second album, Cargo, I think you referenced that earlier in 83. And then that kind of like fell to the background because in 83, that was like business as usual was still a big hit album. And it kind of overshadowed Cargo when that came out in America. Yes. And then... In 1985, they put out their last album as Men at Work, Two Hearts. But this album, apparently Colin Hay had dismissed the rhythm section previous to recording the album, and they used studio players. Yes. So it kind of loses its, its like band vibe. Well, yeah. yes, it certainly lo- – and, and that sort of is reflected in various reviews and comments you hear about that particular record from all sorts sorts of places yeah and then they officially disbanded in 86 and colin hay went on to record like 15 more studio albums with kind of similarly heavy material or like subject matter i'd say and uh he put out they put out a film about him specifically called waiting for my real life Man at work. <laughs> no, Colin Hay waiting for my real life. One of my coworkers came up to me. He came to my desk and saw I was listening to Men at Work, and he's like, oh, I love Men at Work, and just like started raving about them. And he's like, did you see this documentary? That's always funny when you find that person that's really into In the wild. Yeah, yeah. in the wild, yeah. I love the tubes. I'm their biggest fan. <laughs> One thing we've omitted to so far is actually talking about the fact that they won a Grammy, which again, oh, true, was very significant for Australian music, but also obviously reflected their enormous commercial success of this record. So they won the Best New Artist in 1983, which is again. Like I said before, I think Colin Hay is the person who benefited the most from that and continued to pursue sort of professional relationships in the States and working with different musicians and very lots of very prominent sort of session musicians played on these solo records and it's uh, including Herbie Hancock, who's not really a session musician, but I'm just saying. Oh, no, he <laughs> really sort of- kind of is. That's what I've learned from this podcast. He's on... So much as a session player, Herbie. Yeah, yeah, he's been yeah. Out no, a lot I guess I guess he is. I, 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 yeah, he is in many ways. But I guess we don't think about him as a yeah as a session musician. But yet, 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 that's what he was. He was doing. Played. He played keys on. I think it was the first Colin Hay solo record. And we we'd be remiss not to mention that Colin Hay has his own page on the Scrubs wiki. Does he really? Really? Yeah. <laughs> Zach Braff. As it scrubs apparent- the TV show. 
Yeah, Zach Braff apparently loves Men at Work, and he makes like some cameos, like playing his songs, and his songs are featured in a few of the shows. So I don't, I don't remember that. I watched all of Scrub. I don't remember that, but I'll need to get. Obviously, I need to go back and (laughs) watch that. I didn't realize. Uh, I certainly hadn't remembered. That's a nice piece of trivia there, Jeremy. Love to bring any Zach Braff trivia I can. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's kind of your thing, right? <laughs> it's kind of my thing. Well, Peter, I, Peter had the Peter Tupac has... references for a while, yeah. and now you've got all the Zach Braff references. Yeah. Oh boy, we're, we're expecting this. We're expecting this moving forward, Jeremy, to yeah. continue. <laughs> oh boy, find the Zach Braff connection. Well, let's uh, keep things moving here and ask Sean what connection he made. Two other similar artists. Yeah. So I have three other new wave type records that were released in 1981 that are dollar bin adjacent and similar enough in sound to this album. First up, The Go-Go's, Beauty and the Beat, featuring their big hit, Our Lips Are Sealed. As well as We Got the Beat. Yep. That's a great album. It is a great album. One that I believe we've mentioned before and should definitely do an episode on at some point. And then one that I think might have the closest similarity musically and stylistically, Adam and the Ants, Prince Charming, which is their, I think their second or third album and had the single Stand and Deliver on it. Oh, that's, yeah, it's a big song for them. Mm-hmm. Definitely uh, have similar quirky elements to this group, I would say. And then last up, one that I know Peter's a big fan of, Squeeze, East Side Story, featuring their huge hit, Tempted. Tempted by the fruit of another. That's the one. And then I also just want to point out that I think this episode would pair nicely with other recent episodes, such as Missing Persons, Spring Session M, and Split Ends, True Colors, as we've mentioned several times. And I also saw that... When this Men at Work record came out, it broke the Australian record for the most time spent in the number one position for album sales. And the record that it broke belonged to Split Ends True Colors. (laughs) Because they had moved to Australia by then, so they were considered an Australian band. Or or at least on the Australian charts. So they were Split Ends True Colors was the Australian record holder for album time spent at the number one spot for an album and it was broken by men at work business as usual and did you know which record kicked men off men at work off the billboard number one spot what's that none other than michael jackson's thriller uh makes sense very interesting when you look at the time (laughs) look at the context around what else was number one and i don't i don't know how i think this record also spent quite a lot of time then in the charts, just in general. But you know, it's uh, that's a that's not a bad record to get kicked off number one. I don't think. Yeah, really. pretty understandable to be upset by that one. <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> well, thank you, Sean. Those are some good recommended similar albums. We want to just remind our listeners that if you like the content you're hearing, there is always more to be heard over at Patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. Mel, you are a subscriber, a loyal subscriber to our Patreon, and I know that you we know that you regularly enjoy the content over there. I do. I really enjoyed uh well I love all of the 
all the content's great. I just, because it's my thing. But I really enjoyed Sean's playlist for this month. So if that's going <laughs> to, I was, I, I was jigging around the kitchen listening to it. <laughs> when I put it on the other day. Wonderful. Thanks for listening. Uh, and a really nice segue into the country and folk stuff. I was like, how is he going to do that? Yeah. But anyway, so <laughs> I, I highly recommend the Patreon uh, subscriber content. It's very good. Yes, for those that are not aware, we do a monthly mix on our Patreon. And the idea is that the mix is influenced by the episodes that we did that month. And sometimes it seems to fit. But for my month, I had... That was March. Joni Mitchell and Chris Christofferson, yeah, for March. And then um, Coke Escovito and Sylvester. So basically two disco-type <laughs> artists and two kind of rootsy country-type artists. So it took me a minute to figure out how to transition it, but I thought it was a pretty smooth, as smooth as it can be for those seemingly opposite genres. It was very deftly handled. I Could I just add, I think, a couple of records that might also be worth oh, please do. listening to? I think if you've heard of In Excess, uh, who also b- were very big in the States, although later in the 1980s, their first couple of their, their, their earlier records are very worth listening. Not the same, but there are some similarities to Men at Work in terms of the, I guess, the cleanness of the production and sort of the song, some of the, the song styles. And, of course, Midnight Oil, um, who again became bigger or had had some success in the United States in later in the eighties, but also uh, had a very had some very seminal kind of work in the early eighties, late seventies, which I think holds its own. Much harder sort of edge, but again that spare clean sound, which was obviously very much favoured uh, in Australian production at the time. Different producers, obviously, but yeah, that's I would definitely direct people to those two bands and probably ones that you can find in the United States in your sort of bargain bins maybe. Beds Are Burning crossed over to the United States and another hit that's very specific to the Australian experience. And a song that still holds an enormous (laughs) challenge to us as Australians now. So yeah, it's... uh, we could do a whole other conversation about that another day. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully we have given people enough a taste of men at work that they will pursue this admittedly kind of small, but very good catalog of work that is available out there from this group. Mel, thank you. And did you have anything that you would like to give a quick plug to before we get out of here? Anything that you're up to? We know that you have your, you've got a lot of different things you're involved in. I am busy, but we, yes, so my husband and I run an, at the moment an online vinyl store and we take a lot of time to think about what we're going to stock and we are very interested in particular sort of kinds of music, um, We hit, but we do have a lot of rock and pop and so forth and uh, I guess yeah, if you're in if you're in Australia or in Sydney, we're going to be at the uh, the Glebe Record Fair, which is after when this podcast is coming out. So I'm going to put a shout out to the Glebe Record Fair, which is a awesome vinyl fair that has lots of different sellers at it. So we will be there. So if you're in Sydney and you're listening to this and you want to come and meet us and chat about music, then and buy some records, you can see us there. And one more time, what is the name of your online record store? 
oh, sorry, it's rockyroadrecords.com.au. Yes, to our Australian listeners, don't miss it. Get out there. Thank you. Or or just travel there. It's a good excuse to go to Australia. <laughs> There's lots of good reasons to come to Australia. It's just a long way away. We really are in the the middle of everything in the middle of nowhere is, as has been described. <laughs> and we're going out on maybe my favorite song in the album. Touching the Untouchables. Yeah, it's a unique a one. song about just just to add to the cheery vibe, Jeremy. <laughs> Love a cheery vibe. That's my thing. Well, it's a song about homelessness. I definitely get some of the aforementioned missing persons vibes from the intro on this because it's like very the drumming is very acrobatic much like terry Bazio from missing persons yeah jerry spicer is a great drummer uh the drumming on this record is very tight and measured and musical i really enjoy it actually as someone who is studying drums at the moment yes yeah, so touching the untouchables it's track three on side two cool well thanks for coming back mel thank you for having me no worries, mate. <laughs> oh, we we got confirmation that you are indeed Australian now. Yep, you yeah. passed. You passed the test. Good job. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Melanie. We'll see you later. But they don't know Respect the disrespectables But in the end you know